first of all, I, uh, I think that the American people are entitled to know why it appears at least that red flags were ignored before September the 11th. Once you got to Iraq and took it over, took down Saddam Hussein's government, then what are you going to put in its place? That's a very volatile part of the world, and, and if you take down the central government in Iraq, you can easily end up seeing pieces of Iraq fly off. I don't know, in every war that they say we fight to stop communism, I, it doesn't seem right because, after all, Russia hasn't lost a man. And look what we've lost. Sovereignty, territorial integrity, they are the fixed foundation of this noble body. Two hours ago, Allied Air Forces. Earlier today, I ordered America's armed forces on my order to strike military. United States military has begun to strike. Fellow citizens, against Al Qaeda. This hour, American and coalition forces in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, to defend the world from grave danger. Images appear and disappear in poetry and painting, out of a dark void and into it again. Messengers of light and rain, raising their bright, flickered lamps and vanishing in an instant. Yet, they can be glimpsed long enough to save them as shadows on a wall in Plato's cave. Just as the soul of civilization is seen in its architecture, a paucity of poetic imagination signals the decline of its culture. The war against the imagination is not the only war. Using the 9-11 Twin Towers disaster as an excuse, America has initiated the Third World War, which is the war against the Third World. According to the poet Hesiod, the primordial gods Uranus of the sky and Gaia of the earth had 12 children, the Titans, Oceanus, Sias, Crius, Hyperion, Iapetus, Cronus, Thea, Rhea, Themis, Mnemosyne, Phoebe, and Tethys. Cronus would eventually mate with Rhea who would then bear the first Olympians, some of whom may be more familiar to you. Zeus, Hades, Poseidon, Hestia, Demeter, and Hera. Of the non-Olympian offspring of the Titans, none are more famous than the gargantuan Atlas, son of Iapetus and the ocean nymph Clymene, and a Titan in his own right. After defeating his father and establishing tyrannical rule over his siblings, the youngest of the first titans, Cronus, became paranoid that his children would one day rebel and overthrow him. He had good reason for this, as cursing him for this to be so was his father Uranus's last act before being jailed in Tartarus, the afterlife prison of Greek mythology. 
To prevent this, Cronus would eat entirely each child that Rhea gave birth to. You've probably seen the painting. Eventually, Cronus's wife and sister Rhea and his mother Gaia hatched a plan to rescue the youngest of the Olympians, the newborn Zeus, from this fate. They tricked Cronus into eating a rock swaddled in a blanket and then spirited Zeus away to be raised in secret until he could return and get his revenge. When he was old enough, Zeus poisoned his father Cronus with a mixture of mustard and wine, causing Cronus to vomit forth all the Olympians he had swallowed, who, conveniently for Zeus, had grown to maturity in his father's stomach. Zeus declared himself and the Olympians as the now true divine rulers of the world. Atlas and the Titans wouldn't stand for this and rebelled against it. The 10-year war that followed, known as the Titanomachy, devastated the earth and the sea. To fortify their numbers against Atlas's forces in the final year of the war, Zeus and his allies, freed from the shackles Uranus had placed them in, terrifying beasts like the Cyclops and the Hundred-Handed Ones. What came next was nearly the end of the world. From the translated Theogony of Hesiod, quote, Astounding heat seized chaos, and to see with eyes, and to hear the sound with ears, it seemed even as if earth and wide heaven above came together. For such a mighty crash would have arisen if earth were being hurled to ruin, and heaven from on high were hurling her down. So great a crash was there, while the gods were meeting together in strife. When it was over, Zeus threw most of the Titans into Tartarus for their crimes. For Atlas, however, who had been Cronus's second in command before the rebellion, he had a different plan. Most people believe that Atlas the Giant was condemned to hold the world upon his shoulders. This isn't true. Atlas's sentence was to hold up the heavens. He carried the sky so that night and day might meet each other at the threshold of bronze that the Olympians erected to divide them from one another. Likely, this common misconception comes from a second century Roman marble sculpture of Atlas, but it was cemented by the use of Atlas as an insignia on a collection of maps made by 16th century cartographer Gerardus Mercator. The picture on the collection, known as Mercator's Atlas, actually was of Atlas holding up a celestial globe, not an earthly one. But you try telling that to the colonialist merchant sailors who will be very decidedly using these maps to navigate the Earth a couple hundred years later. In a stinging bit of fatefulness, Gerardus actually gave himself the last name Mercator by Latinizing his Flemish last name, Kramer, which meant, in English, marketeer, a merchant. It's fitting because not only was the map hugely important for European marine navigation, and indeed their use of field artillery as they spread their liberal free market imperialist power all over the globe, but it has also served for years since as wonderful pro-capitalist or pro-Eurocentric propaganda. For decades, the ultra-conservative John Birch Society published an embellishment of the Mercator projection 
highlighting and aggrandizing the threats of the Soviet Union and Red China in an attempt to monger fear amongst the more cartographically illiterate in the United States, which is most of us. The Brits particularly liked the Mercator projection because it allowed them, when they could get away with it, to place their colonial holdings, Australia and New Zealand, on the world map twice, on both the left and the right sides of it. There's an argument to be made that since the map is everywhere in United States primary education and pop culture, the fact that it exaggerates the sizes of colonial powers and diminishes the sizes of colonial subjects leads most people in the U.S. to accept, subliminally at least, that the colonial subjects are less important than the larger colonial powers. This is unquantifiable, and it originated with a verified huckster in the 1970s. But I still like where it's coming from. Atlas the God was punished for trying to change the order of the world. Mercator the Man was lauded for his creativity and genius in describing that world and making it more accessible to the kinds of people who also wanted to change the order of it to their benefit. Atlas, Mercator, and indeed the United States all have one thing in common. In the imposition or facilitation of overwhelming power upon the world, they are responsible for the near total destruction of it. If the strong are too strong, if the brilliant are corruptible, if inevitable change seems to bring inescapable doom, what can we do? What kinds of heroes can stand up to this? What worries me is that America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future is going to be the collapse of empire or the rise of the zombies or something that wipes us all out. Superman's going to live forever. Superman, as far as I'm concerned, uh, they saved my life. Grim, totalitarian police state in Britain of the unreachably far future, like 1997. Comic book artists were not happy with Warhol or with McIntyre or any of the pop artists because they said they took our imagery and we got paid page rate. I'm not an expert on superheroes. I haven't read everything there is about them, and God knows I haven't read every adventure they go on. It's honestly hard to say that anyone is an expert on superheroes. Sure, there are avid fans with near-encyclopedic knowledge of just about every published fictional character with powers and a costume or historians who can pin any comic magazine to an editorial or artistic era right down to the actual creative teams per issue. But there's no one in the world who's a walking wiki of what all these different characters mean to different people. And it's those meanings, those very special relationships that readers have to the characters that make superhero comics so unique. So very often, Superpowers are frustrations externalized. They're dreamt up to meet a need the creator feels is not being satisfied. And they're appreciated by an audience who usually feels similarly. 
they can be something as ludicrous as the strength of Atlas or the thunderbolts of Zeus if a kid got beat up on their way home from school, or something as simple as the ability to resurrect beloved pets. Through the critical lens of text as written versus text as read, mainstream superhero comics present a unique case. Those less familiar with the various characters see singular, well-defined versions of those characters, or at least surface-level presentations of them that have enough static consistency to lead one to believe the characters are immutable. Readers of the comics, however, find out soon enough that this isn't the case. Captain America can be this shining paragon of rectitude and virtue, or a vile reminder of criminality on a national scale. Iron Man can be the leading edge of scientific progress and ingenuity, or a stunted monster representing a child's understanding of what those words actually mean. One needs a Rolodex for classic Hulk stories by simple virtue of how many different personalities and characterizations the Hulk himself has had. Is our relationship to every superhero the same? Certainly not. That's why we have more than one. Is everyone's relationship to just one superhero the same? Despite the glut of Batman and Spider-Man merchandise, no. Considering all the different superheroes and all the different reasons that all the different people like them, what is it that glues them together and has made them so successful and appealing all this time? On the grand scale, do superheroes succeed as a genre because humanity sees its optimistic possibilities therein? This is an impossible question to answer, but ironically, the existence of books like The Ultimates, and indeed creators like Mark Miller, inadvertently advances this supposition by the very idea that it can and should be subverted. It's a classic case of begging the question. And let's talk about that subversion. I mentioned at the beginning of this season that the Ultimate Universe was billed as being mature and that it engaged with real-world culture. As I believe I have argued convincingly, it is and does neither. Largely, this is due to the narrow scope of culture that this real world attempts to capture. Most people who read it probably don't think too deeply about what's happening in say, South America or Korea, while the Hulk is smashing Manhattan and calling out Freddie Prince Jr. You know, you're young. You'll need to travel and learn. And we shouldn't expect them to with stories whose boundaries are deliberately curtailed. But when a universe is heralded as being real, and there's an ostensibly internationalized political focus on the characters, the omission or mischaracterization of non-Eurocentric viewpoints is damning. And it gets even worse in the sequel. Just so you didn't have to, I subjected myself to the two sequels to The Ultimates, known oh-so-creatively as Ultimates 2 and Ultimates 3, written by Mark Miller and then Jeff Loeb, respectively. I'm actually going to spoil what happens, so ride that forward button if you don't want to hear it. The Ultimates 2 opens with the public discovering that Bruce Banner is actually the Hulk, thanks to some classified documents being leaked to the media. Everyone, having believed that the Hulk had no relation to the Ultimates beyond having been beaten by them when he destroyed parts of Manhattan a year prior, 
is understandably furious to learn that they were lied to. Banner, a prisoner of S.H.I.E.L.D. but still employed by them, is put on trial and sentenced to death. Hank Pym, now only clandestinely working for S.H.I.E.L.D., secretly saves Banner's life by giving him less than the necessary amount of sedative for the execution, allowing Banner to transform into the Hulk and escape without notice at the last second. The European Union's equivalent of S.H.I.E.L.D. reveals to Nick Fury that Thor, whose mental health was already in question, is firmly mortal and not at all divine. During a particularly violent mental breakdown of his, Thor even apparently absconded with this version of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s electricity belt and big science hammer that give him his godlike powers. The Ultimates track him down, kick his ass, and bring him in, removing his belt and hammer in the process. Tony Stark and Natasha Romanov, the Black Widow, get engaged, and Tony gives her her own Iron Man-like armor. Steve Rogers and Jan Pym are now dating, but they're having some relationship trouble. Who cares? Jan secretly starts hanging out with her abusive husband Hank again because Miller just loves strong women so much. And we learn that Hank has been sleeping with a 19-year-old girl on a third-rate amateur superhero team that he's joined out of desperation. Apart from that bit of grossness, this team, a reimagining of the Defenders, is pretty much the best part of that comic. Except that one of them drops the R word again. Actually, the best part of this series, indeed the best part of all of the Ultimates that was ever written, is when Laura Bush gets blown out of Air Force One after a sickle and hammer-wielding Russian version of Thor attacks it. And that rocks. We learn over the course of the story that there's a traitor on the Ultimates, and that a parallel to Captain America, Colonel Abdul al-Rahman, has been created in the Middle East. Not a particular country, of course, just the Middle East. Al-Rahman is the only other person whose body has accepted the super soldier serum like Steve Rogers' body did back in the 1940s. And that's actually kind of cool on Miller's part, because it's a commentary on how pissed off this kid was about the United States invading and destroying his country. Anyway, for a brief second, we're led to believe that Captain America is the traitor, because security footage of Hawkeye's house shows him murdering Hawkeye's entire family. But of course, this isn't the case. The traitor is, in fact, the Black Widow who's been plotting this whole thing because the United States destroyed the USSR, although she just says Russia, and turned her country into one of, quote, hookers and gangsters. And that's true. She's right to be pissed about that. The destruction of the USSR might be the second greatest crime in history after the U.S.'s genocide of Native Americans. Tonight on Frontline, Russia how radical economic reforms have led to social turmoil and violence. Thanks to immediate and overwhelming privatization starting in 1991, millions of former Soviet citizens lost their life savings, their jobs, their homes, and any and all state-funded social safety nets that might have kept them from abject poverty. And Black Widow is, of course, the bad guy. She's part of an anti-United States super team that appears in the last two or three issues of the series that call themselves the Liberators. They're made up of super-powered villains who want revenge on the United States for destroying their various parts of the world. They're the living embodiment of blowback. And it would totally rock, except that they're portrayed as cruel and almost animalistic, with the exception of Colonel Al-Rahman, who has a somewhat honorable fight with Captain America, but of course he loses and Cap never really stops to consider 
why the guy hated him in the first place. Turns out the whole thing was basically orchestrated by Loki, who reveals himself to the team in the last issue, and then Thor appears and they all fight, and it's actually kind of cool, but only because the coloring is just way better in The Ultimates 2, and also there's a rainbow and I love rainbows. Miller is on record with Ernie Estrella of Pop Culture Shock as saying about The Ultimates 2, quote, In the name of oil, this administration is stirring up a hornet's nest. And even though I'm a huge optimist, I think we're heading for some kind of Armageddon. I just can't see a good way out of this situation, and after decades of seeing Britain try to deal with the IRA, I know you don't defeat terrorists by killing their families. My own belief is that there'll be a couple of nuclear attacks in the States, the multinationals will move elsewhere, the American economy will completely collapse and make the 30s look like the 80s, and the Middle East will be occupied by drafted teenagers from your hometown. But don't get me started, I hope I'm completely and utterly wrong. End quote. It's interesting to note that the Wikipedia page for The Ultimates 2 includes that quote, but it ellipses over the part about the IRA and terrorists. It's telling that he phrases it that Britain deals with the IRA and refers to them specifically as terrorists, which, in a literal sense, they are, but there's baggage which comes with that word and not with, say, freedom fighter or resistance. And it would otherwise be hard to pin down exactly where his sympathies lie, but we know from pretty much his entire corpus that despite how bad those in power might be, any meaningful threat to them is worse. Also, Miller specifically said on Twitter that the IRA is just as bad as the UK because they use violence. And shout out to a comrade for finding that one for me, since Miller blocked me on Twitter some time ago. Did I frighten you? A bit. The Ultimates 2 is as much a nothing burger in terms of political articulation as its predecessor, but it actually presents itself as being far more politically explicit, and indeed has been received that way. However, Despite the villains apparently being the consequences of U.S. imperialism, that's never actually made clear. Yes, they are the result of international meddling, but attached to this analysis is nothing more than the U.S. has gotten too big for its britches and it's time to teach it a lesson. And still, the Ultimates win. They divest themselves from the purview of the government at the end because they see themselves as too powerful for one state to have control over but they end up just getting all their funding from Stark International, which we know is both beholden to and a shepherd of the dictates of U.S. policy by simple virtue of it being a huge corporation. Why do these people think the U.S. intervened in all those other countries in the first place? Mark Miller may very well have written The Ultimates 2 to lay bare his acceptably negative opinions about the United States and other world powers but it shows that he certainly hadn't learned anything in the year between the first Ultimate story and this one. Ultimates 3 is a wretched shade of a comic. It's all boobs, butts, and brawn. Where once I could critique the Ultimates for its content, I'm stuck now critiquing it for its form alone. And its form is god-awful, Jesus Christ. The book is only a merciful five issues long, and while a lot transpires, very little actually happens. The Scarlet Witch is murdered, 
Tony Stark's sex tape with the Black Widow leaks onto the internet, Captain America pretends to be the Black Panther for some reason, and a robot named Ultron tries to replace everyone. I think the last three issues are actually a piece of the larger Ultimatum storyline that heralded the end of the Ultimate Marvel Universe, which is why they pack so much in and yet it makes so little sense that it's not worth recounting. And I'm not going to go out of my way to read something extraneous that makes the Ultimates more intelligible. I'm, I'm just not. It's very likely that the Ultimates are coming back. Marvel announced in August of this year that the Ultimate Universe was going to be a permanent fixture again on comic store shelves, although Ultimate Spider-Man is the only title that has been confirmed. But before we get too lost in the future, let's back it up to the end of the beginning. Our final issue opens with a close-up of Bruce Banner, the Hulk, making a face similar to the one I make whenever I have to write about the Ultimates. Of course, he's just been hurled out of a helicopter right after trying to explain that he's no longer able to transform and likely won't survive the fall. But I feel like there are some overlaps in our two situations. He's still in the straitjacket that S.H.I.E.L.D. has put him in, since he's technically a prisoner being transported to the battlefield. We get a lovely shot of this weapons designer with a history of testing on civilians, plummeting helplessly to his potential death. Alas, we all know this isn't to be. Captain America and Nick Fury, the head of S.H.I.E.L.D., watch with equal fascination as the scrawny war criminal hits terminal velocity. They receive a radio update from the helicopter that was carrying him, but right afterward, it's quite unceremoniously destroyed by what I have to assume was some sort of blast from an alien weapon. It's very unclear. Captain America commands all remaining units to fall back in preparation for the emergence of the Hulk. We're tightly focused on Banner's panicked face again as he screams, you crazy son of a, and you'd expect him to hit the warehouse he's barreling toward then. But the next panel is just a distant shot of him like 20 feet above it. And he doesn't finish what he was going to say, so I guess he just stopped saying it. This brings up questions of distance in presentation. With that silent panel, are we to understand that we, the audience, are too far from Banner, the subject, to hear what he's saying? I think that's what the creative team of Miller and artist Brian Hitch were going for, but there have been numerous panels throughout this book in which we can hear distantly drawn characters that are inconsistent with this approach. The warehouse he hits virtually disintegrates on contact, and in the subsequent chaos, Nick Fury articulates what we're all thinking. Hell of a thud for a 97-pound biologist. We get one more beat of quiet uncertainty, and then the world erupts as the Hulk explodes out of the rubble and debris. For the last several minutes, I think I've been concerning my neighbors Sometimes, when it's nice enough, I sit out on the grass in front of my apartment building and I work on these episodes. It's pretty wonderful when it's not too hot, and I'm super lucky to have that great semi-public space. However, for the previous few minutes while writing this, I've been sitting here trying to position my arms above my head in the way that Brian Hitch has drawn the Hulk's arms as he bursts out of the wreckage. And folks... 
I just don't think it can be done. But this little exercise got me thinking. I have the very great privilege of being able-bodied enough and having a safe enough place to even make jokes like the one I just did. Issue 13 of The Ultimates sports a cover date of 2004, meaning it actually came out a couple months prior. When this issue was released, the United States had been in Iraq for around 11 months. This invasion brought with it the kind of environmental destruction that could only previously have been considered in nightmares, or perhaps Vietnam, or Laos, or Cambodia, or Korea. There was rampant and unaccountable military waste dumping. There were spent shells. There was rapid and unregulated base construction. There were burn pits and open toxic junkyards, none of which had existed until the arrival of the United States. We, as humans, consider ourselves advanced. Naturally, this is open to debate in interpretation and applicability. Developmentally speaking, we're advanced in that we have infrastructure that supports us, that does the work we require to live for us. How many of you out there have dug a well? Would you have time to listen to this podcast if you had to hunt for your every meal? Would there be podcasts if there weren't an intricate network of stretched and threaded copper cables running above and below us almost everywhere we go? When we don't have these systems, life gets measurably worse. These systems, however advanced, come at a cost, though. And while the maintenance of them mitigates that toll, careless destruction of them exacerbates it. Chemicals that were used to construct them leak into the environment surrounding them. The aggregation of waste and refuse may now have nowhere to go. What had been merely untreated water, for instance, now becomes a concentration of untreated water with all the attendant diseases. The United States Congress voted to destroy these systems in Iraq. Our military annihilated them without discretion and without mercy. In the first 48 hours of the invasion, 800 cruise missiles were launched at the infrastructure that kept the people of Iraq alive and healthy. That's more than double the amount that was used in the entire Gulf War in the 1990s. In a special toxic politics issue of the journal Social Studies of Science, anthropologist Christina Lyons presented the term evidentiary ecologies to describe how the effects of war and politics on an environment can serve as evidence of wrongdoings on the part of those in power. This evidence can take the form of the inability of crops to grow, the lack of potability of water, bad air quality, etc. The destruction of Iraq's infrastructure resulted in some of the most disturbing evidentiary ecologies the world has ever seen. Among the most damning aspects of any evidentiary ecology is the presence of birth defects. Some of you might know where this is going, and I'm so sorry. Per an Al Jazeera report, the rate of birth defects in Iraq after the U.S. invasion is 14.7 percent. 
that's 14 times higher than the rate of birth defects after the U.S. dropped the nuclear bombs on Japan. There really aren't words to describe how I feel about the fact that nearly one in five babies in Iraq is born with a tumorous growth that's the size of their entire body, or with a face that looks split in half with a hatchet, or is entirely unrecognizable as being human. Writing for Middle East Report Online, Kali Rubai of Purdue University describes how, upon visiting Iraq, it was, quote, not uncommon for a family to line up their children by age so she could witness the visible line of before and after the U.S. invasion, end quote. In her travels, another Iraqi citizen told her, quote, the Americans wanted this. If they didn't, they would have cleaned up from their wars. They starved us during the sanctions. Now they are poisoning us, end quote. The United Nations definition of genocide is as follows. Genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. A. Killing members of the group. B. Causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. C. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. D. Imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. E. Forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. The United States invasion of Iraq meets the eighth, beeth, seeth, and deeth parts of that definition. But of course, they can weasel out of it because of the nebulous, with intent to, phrasing. Whether or not this fits the definition of genocide is academic. It still represents the United States' psychopathic death drive toward complete economic domination. In a stirring bit of symbolism, the environment of Iraq gets more toxic and more dangerous the closer one is to a U.S. base. This is due, in part, to the careless and wasteful dumping processes that U.S. soldiers maintain at said bases. And this isn't just the case overseas. From a Guardian article in 2021, quote, the U.S. military ordered the clandestine burning of over 20 million pounds of cancerous forever chemical AFFF and AFFF waste between 2016 and 2020. That's despite the fact that there is no evidence that incineration actually destroys these synthetic chemicals. In fact, there is good reason to believe that burning AFFF simply emits these toxins into the air and onto nearby communities, farms, and waterways. The Pentagon is effectively conducting a toxic experiment and has enrolled the health of millions of Americans as unwitting test subjects, end quote. The closer anyone lives to a U.S. military base, the more dangerous it is for them, their children, and their children's children. If that isn't a damning metaphor, I don't know what is. 
Amidst the devastation and probably toxic waste of the Hulk's landing and emergence, Nazi alien Herr Kleiser has risen from where Captain America beat him up and left him last issue, and is shambling up behind Captain America and Nick Fury while they're distracted. Before Cap notices Kleiser, Fury tells him that he's just shat his pants. It's probably just a joke, but I choose to believe Fury meant it literally, and Kleiser can very likely hear it, so I hope he thinks so too. Captain America finally senses the approaching alien and shoves Nick Fury away, telling him to get out of the fight. Kleiser mocks Captain America for being noble to the last as Cap forces Nick Fury to stand aside. Before Kleiser and his super soldier counterpart can go toe-to-toe -to -toe again, the Hulk barrels into Captain America and accuses him of betraying their friendship by making him look like a fool. He's referring to the end of issue five in which Captain America kicked a recently detransformed Bruce Banner in the face after the Hulk destroyed parts of Manhattan. In a truly mind-numbing display of callowness, Captain America gets the Hulk to stop attacking him by refocusing the cause of the Hulk's ire. He says, quote, Hulk, you don't understand. This isn't about you and me. This is about your girlfriend, end quote. Now confused as well as enraged, the Hulk demands an explanation. Captain America points to Herr Kleiser and claims, quote, that naked guy over there says he's been all over Betty the whole time you've been in solitary, end quote. Yeah. After the Russian Revolution overthrew the Tsarist state in 1917, page after page of legislation was passed formalizing equality for women all over the country. The Bolsheviks, and particularly Vladimir Lenin, took note, however, that formal equality is merely the first step toward actual equality. A wonderful quote from Lenin reads thus, quote, the more thoroughly we clear the ground of the lumber of the old bourgeois laws and institutions, the more we realize that we have only cleared the ground to build on, but are not yet building, end quote. The social must follow the structural, even as one informs the other. Indeed, author and activist Francis Ryan commented in a Guardian article specifically about supposed feminist gains in Britain in the early 2000s, that equal pay had only been won in the legislature and not in real life. Patriarchal violence is not always physical. One of the crimes that a capitalist economy commits against women in particular is a devaluation of their labor, salaried or domestic. This is, of course, to say nothing about the devaluation of the labor of Africans and black Americans as actual chattel slaves, but the historical mechanisms of the devaluation of women's labor under capitalism are unique and a little more relevant to our purposes here. In the 1920s, more and more electrical appliances, ostensibly meant to ease the burden of housework, were made available to the working class of the United States. The application of this technology essentially mechanized the labor of whichever partner maintained the home, which was almost exclusively women at the time. If you've listened to the previous episode, you'll understand how, in a capitalist economy, mechanization of labor doesn't lead to an easing of it for the laborer. This is as true for the housewife as it is the factory worker. 
Multiple factors contribute to this in the case of housekeeping. Bonnie J. Fox of the University of Toronto explains, quote, household chores may shift from the husband and other household members to the housewife when labor-saving devices are acquired. Standards of homemaking may rise in a mechanized home, and more time can be spent on other domestic responsibilities previously less satisfactorily fulfilled, e.g. childcare, when menial tasks are performed more quickly, end quote. Fox points out in her essay, Selling the Mechanized Household, 70 Years of Ads in Ladies' Home Journal, that the early 20th century saw a decline in traditional ways that women contributed to a household's income, like caring for livestock or taking in rent-paying boarders. During World War II, an unprecedented number of women were forced into more typically male-dominated production jobs to fill in for the workers who had been drafted. The prevailing notion is that when the male soldiers returned home, women were pushed down the ladder or out of the workplace entirely. Marxist feminist theorist Lisa Vogel asserts that this isn't totally the case and that the reality was that the demographic of now-employed women was what changed. Younger women were indeed sent home, as it were. But older women, many with school-aged children, stayed on the payroll. In contradiction to the supposed nuclear family of the 1950s, the number of women in the workplace would continue to grow. The system shock from this social upheaval was preyed upon by reactionary advertising agencies that sought not to characterize housework as an oppressive burden, but rather as serious business whose serious responsibility required serious tools in order to maintain the, at least understood, status of women as necessarily subservient. This overdrive on the part of advertising media has, as feminist critic and author Joan Rothschild put it, quote, aided a capitalist patriarchal political order to reinforce the gender division of labor and to lock women more firmly into their traditional roles in the home, end quote. In sort of a chain reaction to this reaction, what had been growing movements for socialist feminism began to be subsumed replaced and ultimately destroyed by more bourgeois liberal feminist organizations that demanded, instead of the economic and democratic equality that socialism would engender, the abolition of traditional barriers between women and the opportunities to exploit the labor of others that are inherent to capitalism. At the present time, uh, it's a sort of watershed, I think. Um, women are apparently liberated in many ways, but in fact and in practice, they're not. They're still discriminated against in many professional fields. Basically, it was the beginning of the girl boss era. This isn't progress. The co-opting of social movements is one of, quote, progressive capitalism's strengths thanks to the very mechanisms it utilized to promote the regressive housewife messaging in the first place, its media apparatuses. And despite all the rights that women have been given over the years, the fundamental truth is that this system will never result in full equality. It literally cannot. 
Capitalism requires the underpayment of labor to produce profit. It will not and cannot allow any historically exploited group its fair share of the pie. Because of the predatory nature of capitalism and its complete inability to address sex and gender inequality, we can have a moment like this in The Ultimates, where a powerful and sharply independent character like Betty Ross can still be spoken of like an object by her peers and co-workers. Betty's labor is devalued materially and socially. And yeah, her labor in this book is the promotion of a murderous superteam under the auspices of the world's most evil government, but the historical and theoretical point still stands. What follows is pretty grotesque, to be honest. The Hulk spends the next several panels flinging the naked Herr Kleiser around and basically threatening to sexually assault him. Specifically, he says, quote, Hulk touch naked guy like naked guy was touching Betty. The whole thing is supposed to be funny, but you know, whereas the bit in the Avengers movie where the Hulk just tosses Loki around like an empty pillowcase is a lighthearted subversion of what we thought was going to be some grand pronouncement by the villain, this is just not fun. It's an appeal to the baser understanding of gender relations that incurious men too often labor under. Hulk flings the bare buff Kleiser, basically asshole first, into one of those canvas-covered army trucks. Kleiser slams against its front wheels as Fury looks at Captain America and says, quote, Cap, you're a genius. I ever tell you you're a genius, end quote. And it's just a little hollow. You know, normally I don't mind when characters are surprised that something works. I don't usually yell at a fictional man and say, it only worked because the writer decided it worked. But to laud Captain America for the good results of doing something so repugnant is just a, a cheese grater to my brain stem. Now assuming that Kleiser is well in hand, Captain America orders all non-super personnel to vacate the area with the exception of technical support, which he directs towards the Wasp and the Black Widow, whom I'll remind you, in case you forgot in this mess of a plot, are attempting to disarm some sort of alien megabomb that's going to destroy the entire solar system in mere minutes. Turns out, this was just a brief aside, and we're jerked right back into the fight between the Hulk and Kleiser. Kleiser, refusing to go down easy, picks up the truck he was slammed against and hurls it at the Hulk. With his lips dangling from his face and one eye simply gone, Kleiser says, quote, I was fighting Steve Rogers before you were even born. Are they stupid enough to think some steroid-enhanced lab rat's going to stop me now, end quote. And not to get all identity politics here, but I'm only quoting that line in full because the phrasing makes it sound like Steve's pronouns are they, them, which would make Captain America at least a little bit cooler because I know the kinds of comics fans that that would piss off. Anyway, Hulk responds with, quote, no, naked guy is the stupid one here. Naked guy went and made Hulk angry, end quote. And we get a really disgusting close-up of the Hulk. One eye is opened wide with quite literally insane rage. The other is narrowed with a menacing playfulness. Many of his teeth are cracked or missing, and a truly disturbing amount of thick, foamy spittle is just pouring out of his mouth. In one of the greatest transgressions, 
he has committed against me personally, Mark Miller had the gall to comment the least on his longest issue of The Ultimates in the interview in the back of the collected edition. Actually, it was issue 11 that he commented on the least, but let's think about this proportionally. Seriously, there's nothing there except for an admission that an issue 13 that wasn't even supposed to be somehow became a 41-page monstrosity. And also Miller and Hitch talk about the Hulk's shit, but we'll get to that. Recently, Mark Miller gave a two-hour casual interview with the YouTube channel Thinking Critical, a conservative comic book review and discussion program with such delightful takes as such and such is the short bus of comic book review sites, or isn't it funny how certain people can't get work in the comics industry anymore? And I think we all know who they mean. It's a war against white people in this country. They're even on record saying that The Ultimates is brilliant, just so we understand who we're working with here. In the interview, Miller posits a way to save the failing comics industry by bringing back an old guard of established writers to do stories for all the big-name characters for two or three years in order to generate excitement for reading and collecting comics again. He offhandedly presents a few candidates, and they're, of course, all white men. But that's sort of only half the point, isn't it? I'm honestly not sure that Miller even realizes that there's a singular demographic involved with his proposal. And to me, that indicates something almost as pernicious as outright racism and sexism. The inability to notice that one is engaging in them. Despite Miller's pretty atrocious output, I don't think he explicitly believes that women deserve to be sexually assaulted, or that only white men should be allowed to write comics. Or at least, I don't think he believes that he believes that, or understands that he believes that. He certainly doesn't present himself as being as despicable as the people who are interviewing him, one of whom tweeted out that a movie that was described as embracing an alarmingly misogynistic future was, quote, finally a new movie worth watching, end quote. Miller's work speaks for itself, of course. If Miller believed the opposite of the things he's criticized for, he wouldn't include them in his stories. And if he held such strong, positive convictions, he wouldn't go on shows like Thinking Critical, despite how cagey he was regarding some of their more lurid comments during the interview. Miller is living proof that political understanding, political literacy, is a sublimely varied characteristic. He can go on an ultra-conservative YouTube channel and then talk about how regrettable it is that, for comics to succeed, the megacorporations that own them must succeed. And I think that, despite the deliberate courting of corporate success that has driven his whole career, Miller actually does believe that corporate control of comics is less than ideal. For whatever that's worth, of course, he can regret it all the way to the bank without stopping to change it along the way. To see the abhorrent jerk-offs interviewing him nod their heads along with this and to hear their mumbled, starstruck concurrences would be funny if it weren't so frustrating. 
Really, Miller seems like the kind of guy who hates corporate control as it opposes creator control rather than worker control. And there's a key difference. Yes, comics creators should own what they produce, just like all workers. But to frame it as creator ownership specifically comfortably situates it in an individualistic narrative that's less than helpful when discussing class politics. Advocating an individual creator's rights to characters they've created doesn't necessarily help the exploited writers and artists working on stories and characters that Marvel and DC already own. What have the women characters in this book actually accomplished? Wasp showed her boobs and flew into Hulk's ear. The Black Widow sucker punched a whole building, but to what end? Betty Ross has been just generally unhappy and problematic, and Scarlet Witch's most memorable contribution is that Tony mentioned her breasts once. Of all of these, it's nice that the Wasp has been given the most heft, considering that she's also been used as a device to move the story along with her husband's descent into a more personal kind of abusive villainy. She's also been the subject of a lot more attention than the others, but again, that's because of her possible romantic entanglement with Captain America, not because of something she brings to the team. The only time we really see her in any kind of solo action is when she's been left behind for the Micronesia operation and the Chitauri have taken over S.H.I.E.L.D.'s headquarters. Sure, she was able to escape for a little while, and she does her damnedest to communicate to the returning team that the invasion was happening. But we're told that she actually failed at doing that because the comms were down. And despite Kleiser's later congratulating her for the Ultimate's vengeful return in Phoenix, she couldn't have known what coordinates to transfer to the team because she would have had no idea where the Chitauri were going to take her, or that they were going to take her anywhere at all. So we don't see her succeeding. We're simply told in a non-committal way that she did after they established that she couldn't have. In the latest example of these women simply not doing anything, we cut to the Black Widow and the Wasp in the computer control room trying to stop the bomb. Well, not really. Black Widow is shooting at Chitauri, who still look like the US troops they shapeshifted into, so that's kinda cool, but the Wasp is just calling everyone in her contacts list to see if they can come figure out the technicals on this one. Janet Pym is a molecular biologist with two PhDs. We never see her doing any science. There's one time when she's in a lab coat and science is being done around her. That's it. We're told that, thanks to the genetic mutation that gives her her wasp abilities, she's almost pathologically down on herself. She apparently has so little self-esteem that she allowed her abusive husband to take credit for her powers and tell the world that she actually has them thanks to his research. We never really see the consequences of this. It's pretty much never brought up, except for the one time they fight. And this is an unbelievable whiff on the part of Mark Miller, and it demonstrates exactly what I was talking about earlier regarding his work speaking to his opinions on women. 
Here, we have a superhero who has heretofore deliberately curtailed her own contributions to the world being given a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to prove her scientific and personal bona fides. Have her buckle down and figure this one out. It's just goofy alien comic book science. Interocitor incorporating planetary generator. Interocitor with bolterators with astroscope. A creative writer could easily justify how a molecular biologist could be the one to crack the code. Maybe she could see a pattern that Earth- or human-centric computer scientists overlooked. But no, nothing like that happens. And we're left, again, without anything resembling a character arc, and this poor woman is relegated to a support role for the men on her team. Instead, Black Widow has the brilliant idea for the Wasp to call Tony Stark justifying it by saying that Tony got his first college degree at 11 years old, was XMIT, whatever that means, and that he, quote, practically designed the internet. Now, you all know at least a little bit about me by now. I'm not one to defend Democrats. But in my research for this episode, I was looking up the whole I-invented-the-internet kerfuffle that Al Gore caused when he was running against George Bush for president in 2000. And it turns out that that whole debacle was pretty much just a cynical and pathetic ploy on the part of the Republicans to smear Gore as being at once stupid and almost burdensomely self-congratulatory. In March of 1999, Gore did an interview with Wolf Blitzer in which he mentioned that during his time in Congress, he, quote, took the initiative in creating the Internet, end quote. While it's fairly obvious what this means, it's also not surprising that it was latched upon and paraded around by Republican operatives. Gore might have been referring to the disastrous Telecommunications Act of 1996, but more likely, he was talking about his support for the expansion of ARPANET in the 70s and 80s. How did the Internet actually get started? Some of you might already know this, but it's yet another tale of public initiatives, and thus public money, being seized and perverted by private interests. In 1957, the Soviet Union launched the satellite Sputnik 1, which provided valuable knowledge about the density of Earth's upper atmosphere, gave clarity to the way radio signals propagate in the ionosphere, and most importantly, sent the United States into an absolute meltdown about the evil Ruskies coming for their precious a lack of healthcare and democratic rights. Both fueling and fueled by this terrifying reaction, the U.S. government created the Advanced Research Projects Agency, or ARPA, which absolutely sounds like something Stan Lee would take credit for. Soon after, ARPA would add defense to its name and come to be known as DARPA. In 1962, an MIT computer scientist named J.C.R. Licklider proposed an idea for a quote-unquote galactic network of computers through which users could transmit files, access disparate and distinct programs, and just communicate with each other. While not substantially contributing to the actual development himself, Licklider influenced many of his peers at DARPA, who, several years later, would go on to produce ARPANET. 
the first computer network to use a method of data transmission and reception known as packet switching, a revolutionary improvement over the more primitive telephone system that researchers had been attempting to utilize. Parallel to some of the early research at MIT, the RAND Corporation was working on their own computer network project. These two projects would combine with research being done by the British National Physical Laboratory to result in the previously mentioned DARPA successes. These projects were partially justified by the claim that they could facilitate U.S. military communication even after a nuclear strike. Such networks would remain largely experimental and mostly confined to research labs and college campuses for about two decades. And it was great because nerdy university students would play the kinds of video games I love on them. In 1986, the internet finally became the internet, thanks to ARPANET having switched over to a new transmission protocol known as TCPIP, which allowed it to communicate with an entirely different network of computers, specifically the National Science Foundation's NSFNet. Because of the growing apparent utility of such communications technology, a small group of Democratic Congress members began to publicly champion the funding of research and infrastructural implementation of it. In 1983, Al Gore and Tim Wirth, among others, would come to be referred somewhat infrequently as Atari Democrats. Here's how they were described in the New York Times. Quote, when the Atari Democrats first emerged in the early Reagan years, their commitments to free markets and investment won them much criticism from older liberals, who considered their neoliberalism as warmed over Reaganism." End quote. Oops, oops. Uh. In that same passage, then-Colorado Representative Tim Wirth is reported to have contended that his promotion of the free market would actually set the stage for better protection of the environment than, as he called them, command and control regulations. And we're witnessing now just how wrong he was. Speaking of TCPIP, author Ben Tarnoff explains in his book, Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future, that, quote, under private ownership, such a language could never have been created. The research was too extensive, and the possible use for profit was not obvious enough. ARPANET once even approached AT&T and offered for the company to take over the project, and AT&T refused. AT&T could have owned the internet. After a decade of congressional urging and the rise of Silicon Valley, the internet got its place within the daily lives of enough of the U.S. consumer base that its extreme profitability was finally noticed and jumped upon by the capital class. There was just one problem. The NSFNet's acceptable use policy prohibited the use of the Internet for commercial activity. You can guess where this is going. In 1995, the NSFNet was shut down, and all its infrastructure was given over to private corporations. There's a lot more to this story, and believe me, it's as heartbreaking as it is enraging, but we're going to be covering it in much more depth next season. For Tony Stark to have practically invented the internet, as the Black Widow puts it, he'd have had to have spent 
unbelievable amounts of money on a project that would have been three decades away from showing any signs of being profitable and started right around the time he was born. But, hey, maybe Widow just got her information from a Tony Stark puff piece. Lord knows, there are plenty of parallelly, parallelly, why did I write that? There are plenty of applicable examples in the real world. Look at any mainstream news piece or hastily cobbled biography of Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. Many, many, many capitalists have fawning coverage of their more innovative qualities and endeavors, but none so concentrated as those famous disruptors in the tech industry. There's a very, very funny ad in this final issue for a Spider-Man-themed internet service provider complete with a quote-unquote super cool and free Spider-Man messenger and a quote-unquote super cool and free Spider-Man web browser. The early 2000s were the days of chaos and wonder for the internet, no doubt about it. The Wasp tries to contact Tony, but somehow she calls the rather recently introduced archery-based hero Hawkeye, who, as we know from the last few episodes, might actually be the most deeply unpleasant character in the book, and he's not about to turn that around here. He overhears the broadcast of Wasp's request for Tony, which distracts him long enough for an enemy combatant to get a bullet through his shoulder. He answers the call and hears Wasp asking if it's Tony on the other end. He replies, quote, No, it's Hawkeye, you stupid witch. And you just got me shot in the freaking shoulder. Get off the line. End quote. I have, as I have mentioned on multiple occasions, unfortunately had to subject myself to numerous reviewers talking simply about how much fun the Ultimates is. These people are wrong. They're wrong, and all I have to do is point to Hawkeye to show how wrong they are. Iron Man cuts in before Hawkeye can use any slurs and tells the Wasp that he can't redirect his efforts at the moment because he and Thor are the only ones fighting all the flying ships. And I'm not sure why the flying ships haven't just retreated. They're in no condition to fight. They've already planted the bomb. The whole idea is to just wash their hands of this entire Earth project. So why are they even wasting their time with these superheroes? What is this destruction even for? The Wasp pleads with Tony and makes the pretty solid case that the solar system destroying bomb nearing zero on the clock merits a little more attention than the ships concentrating their fire on some desert outside Phoenix, Arizona. My words, not hers. She tells Tony to leave the alien armada to the Air Force, whom neither Tony nor Thor had realized were on their way. We get a morally objectionable but mercifully brief scene where the United States Air Force looks like the heroic good guys. Cut back once again to the fight between the Hulk and Herr Kleiser at his most ragged yet. We actually don't even see much of Kleiser in the four panels on this page. He's totally obscured by the behemoth beating the snot out of him. With each blow, the Hulk screams at him, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. But, you know, more dramatically than that. It feels like we've missed a part of the fight, because three pages earlier, Hulk was the one to get the last word in when he told Kleiser that Kleiser had made him angry. And I know I'm picking nits here, but I just expect better 
from a professional comic book that had to make it through multiple drafts and multiple editorial filters. Hulk cements this by saying that Kleiser talks too much, and then he delivers an earth-shattering blow worthy of Zeus or Atlas, or even the United States at its most aggressive. The barely recognizable face of Kleiser says, quote, well, my friend, it would appear that congratulations are in, and then the Hulk simply rips his head off with his final and largest shut up. We turn the page to a completely different color palette for some reason. Captain America is marshalling all non-superpowered troops away from the battlefield and ordering them to focus on helping the casualties. He then demands that someone patch him up to the speaker system. And then we cut back to the Hulk for what's about to be, maybe, the second worst moment in this whole book. Like, right up there with the letter on my head gag from the last issue. Hulk is crouched over the remains of Herr Kleiser and is wolfing them down like some sort of feral child. He's muttering to himself about how he's so strong and Banner's so weak and yada yada, who cares? Captain America's voice pierces the moment hailing the Hulk and directing his attention toward the spacecraft in the sky. In yet another display of blistering juvenilism, Captain America tells the Hulk that the aliens in the spacecraft were calling the Hulk, quote, a sissy boy. He asks Hulk if Hulk is going to let them get away with that. Hulk stands from his crouch, mutters, Hulk not sissy boy. And then he leaps madly into the air, right at the audience, his outstretched hand taking up most of the panel, and he screams, Hulk straight! This book has the wisdom and outlook of a 14-year-old white suburban boy, and it's not afraid to show it. I mentioned that Mark Miller's family was devastated by Thatcher's economic policies when he was 15. I really think that that seminal event stunted him both politically and emotionally. Despite all his bluster about being left-wing, Mark Miller has no love for the people. He has no empathy or compassion. There is only aggression and vindictiveness. Now, as communists, we understand, of course, that the systemic outweighs the individual. So, it could be argued that Miller's personal approach to camaraderie matters far less than his opinions on the larger mechanisms of society. But we also know that those are severely lacking as well. So Miller comes up short on both counts, leaving us to ask, in what way is Miller left-wing? Sure, Miller doesn't like George W. Bush, but neither did Michael Perutka, the Constitution Party candidate, who ran to the right of Bush for president in 2004 because George Bush wasn't conservative enough. In a 2007 interview with Comic Book Resources, Miller himself admits that The Ultimates is conservative. Quote, Ultimates is a pro-status quo book. If anything, it was kind of a right-wing book, like Rush Limbaugh doing super comics. It was like, hey, superheroes should all be on the government payroll and go out there and fight the war on terror, you know? End quote. Now you'd think this was a far cry from his later claim, quote, I'm a member of the most left-wing party in Europe. I've stood at rallies and introduced speakers like John McDonnell, regarded as the most left-wing shadow chancellor in British history. 
until you hear the rest of it. And I have no issue with people thinking differently from me. End quote. Clearly, he does not, if the Ultimates is any indication. It's fairly obvious that Miller was overstating his left-wing credentials for their rhetorical value, but some people, I'm sure, still believe him. Just look at how he writes Tony Stark, the good billionaire, in this next scene. When he arrives to inspect the bomb, he says, quote, Sorry, sweeties, I haven't a clue how to switch this thing off, end quote. They ask him if he's even going to try. He says, quote, First rule of business, darling, manage time efficiently. I say, you don't waste any more time scratching your pretty little head and cut straight to the backup plan, end quote. Sweeties, darling, pretty little head. These words are deliberately chosen to make Tony condescending. Yeah, it's probably supposed to be annoying, but considering that this is about to be Tony at his most heroic, you'll forgive me for thinking that it's not actually meant to color our perceptions of him meaningfully. Isn't it funny how he's also sort of a jerk? Anyway, here he is being cool. He tells the Wasp and Black Widow to stand back while he drags the bomb outside so that he and Thor can dispose of it. Before he can leave with the bomb, he's pulled aside by the Black Widow, who thanks him for the really good sex that they had. Of course. So, just to be clear, we have two supposedly hyper-competent women being talked down to by the man they felt compelled to call because they couldn't figure out something that could have absolutely been in their wheelhouse and one of them is fawning over him because he fucked her real good. If you're not grossed out by this, then we must be reading two very different comics, or are two very different people. After thanking him for the pre-battle relief, you, Black Widow tells Tony that she will always honor the sacrifice he's about to make. He's a bit confused by this, and he tells her that he has no plans to sacrifice himself, and that he's just going to move the bomb outside so that Thor can teleport it to another dimension. And why should we expect a billionaire weapons designer to sacrifice himself? When has the capital class ever truly borne the cost of war? Last week on this broadcast, we heard for the first time the full story from a Texas politician who says he helped George Bush avoid military service in Vietnam. In 2004, former Speaker of the Texas House of Representatives, Ben Barnes, went on 60 Minutes 2 and told Dan Rather that he had personally helped George W. Bush secure a spot in the 147th Fighter Wing of the Texas Air National Guard in 1968. Now, during the Vietnam War, the National Guard was a pretty decent alternative to, you know, being drafted to fight in the jungle, and the 147th was already a pretty exclusive club on top of that. It was so cushy that it was known as the Champagne Unit. While stationed there in Houston, Bush was promoted without precedent and to the shock of many to the rank of second lieutenant. This was despite his not meeting any of the prerequisites. He had even scored only 25% on his initial pilot aptitude test. 
Not only was he given extraordinary treatment while he was quote-unquote serving, but he was also allowed to simply not do it. Early in his duty, W. was whisked from Texas for two whole months to go work on a Senate campaign in Florida for Edward Gurney, an ally of his father's and a potential key player in Nixon's Southern strategy. In another story, with very many backs and forths, it turns out that W. also basically just went AWOL his last two years of service when he was in Montgomery, Alabama. Some of you may remember this as a major criticism of Bush in the 2000 and 2004 presidential campaigns, but you also might not because it was pretty effectively buried by his team and a complicit media who instead focused on his opponent John Kerry's actual service in Vietnam. And of course, I'm not saying that makes Kerry better, but this does serve as a great example of pure projection that the U.S.'s rhetorical forces are so famous for. This isn't anything new, however. When volunteers for service in the U.S. Civil War began to dwindle, both the Union and the Confederacy instituted policies of conscription. On either side, allowances were made for rich people to avoid fighting or to avoid having their children fight. It was called substitution, and you could literally pay someone who was otherwise ineligible for the draft to take your place. There's a reason the Civil War was referred to as a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. But almost all U.S. wars have been that way since. During the Vietnam War, there were multiple types of draft deferments. Notably, only one served to defer more poor draftees than rich ones, the Armed Forces Qualifying Test. More men from lower income backgrounds than higher income ones failed this test and were thus ineligible for the draft. As mentioned, though, this was but one of the mechanisms of deferment. The most famous was the student deferment, which often disqualified someone from service by virtue of their being enrolled in higher education. As you might imagine, this disproportionately benefited the rich. But it's even worse than you'd think. According to numbers reported by the Washington Post way back in 1982, of the 2 million student deferments, 18% of the lowest income fifth were deferred. 26% of the middle fifth were deferred, and a whopping 51% of the highest income fifth of drafted students in the United States didn't have to fight in Vietnam. What's life like over here? <laughs> like pure hell. It's no secret that military recruiters prey on lower-income areas, offering people that the United States has deliberately impoverished supposed opportunities for advancement. Draft or not, military enlistment has always fallen and will always fall on the poorest among us. And you can bet your blaster boots that whatever this Tony Stark could do to avoid the draft, he would do. And the regular Tony Stark from the main Marvel Universe already went to Vietnam, so I... Guess that's sort of a moot point here. The Wasp and the Black Widow are very, very unhappy with Tony's plan to let Thor teleport the bomb to a magical realm. And they're quick to let him know that. Black Widow says, quote, you're going to take the bomb and dump it in Narnia, end quote. 
To which Tony replies, quote, Stop being so Eastern European and relax, Natasha, end quote. And I can't fathom what that means. He continues to justify his decision by saying, quote, We're talking about the Norse god of thunder here, honeybee, end quote. I hate Tony Stark. Widow counters the claim, and in the process, sets up maybe my favorite and the only actually really just genuinely good and fun moment in the whole book, when she says, quote, No, we're not. We're talking about a former mental patient. Are you the only one who hasn't noticed? Thor's insane. He's out of his mind. The poor man's a delusional schizophrenic, end quote. At which point, the doors to the comms room fling open and vibrant, angelic light spills past them and around a determined yet amused-looking Thor, brandishing his hammer and claiming, O ye of little faith. And I love that. That's really good. That's a setup and a payoff that's really fun, clever, and at no one's expense. It's the anti-Mark Miller. This fails to convince the widow, though, and she's still pleading with Tony and Thor to cop to the joke. Tony corrals her and the wasp out of the hangar just as Thor takes a mighty swing at the bomb, blowing them all off their feet. Getting up, the widow expresses her persistent disbelief. She yells at Tony, assuming that Thor's hammer is merely some sort of gadget that can teleport things, and that he's only moved the bomb to somewhere like Nebraska or Canada, but hardly anywhere that would be far enough away to get everyone out of danger. Thor appears out of thin air next to them, prompting the wasp to exclaim, God Almighty. He turns and assures the Black Widow that no one is going to die today and forgive me for the pronunciation here. He sent the bomb to the wastes of Naustrand, a realm that has been an endless desert since its people tried to rise up against Asgard. He says it's home to only Fafnir the dragon now. Okay, a couple things. In the Marvel Universe, or some of them I guess, Fafnir the dragon does indeed live in the barren crystalline desert of Naustrand. He and his people were thoroughly evil, apparently, and that justified Odin's decision to destroy their homeland. Very cool, Odin. In real-world Norse mythology, Naustrand is actually basically hell for sinners to go to. It's where Nidhogg lives, the eater of the world tree. Marvel just loves to take liberties. I suppose it's good that Thor is able to teleport the bomb to a place where it won't hurt anyone. That's, objectively... The move. But it's just a little too reminiscent of the U.S.'s testing of nuclear weapons and nuclear power in indigenous lands for me to feel good about it in any way. According to this comic, Thor's people murdered just about everyone in this realm. Then, he has the gall to drop a bomb on the sole survivor of their massacre. The supreme symbol of the U.S.'s might was, for years the nuclear bomb, or rather the fact that the U.S. was the only one to have used it. It's fitting that a world-destroying bomb is synonymous with the government that dropped it, because the government that dropped it is synonymous with genocide. Forget everything the United States has done lately. The very creation and expansion of it is possibly the greatest crime in history. 
Over the course of 400 years, the population of indigenous people in North America fell from approximately 18 million to just 237,196 by 1900. Death tolls of native populations were often as large as 95% thanks to European colonization. Although that's the smallest the native population has gotten, the genocide is ongoing. It never stopped, no matter what you might think. And why should it? They've always been considered second-class citizens, if they're considered citizens of the US at all. Native Americans didn't have the right to a jury until 1968. To satisfy the fury and the panic of the Cold War arms race, the US destroyed native lands from 1944 to 1986 purely in search of uranium. In particular, this devastated Navajo lands in the Southwest and led to an epidemic of radiation-related illnesses among the native people who were hired at low pay and with zero health consideration to work in the uranium mines. On top of this, nuclear testing destroyed entire generations of families who were living on the lands that the U.S. was using for nuclear weapons experiments. In just one location, Mercury, Nevada, the U.S. detonated 928 nuclear explosions. There's even a name for the communities of people hurt by this, downwinders, given to them because they suffered from the radioactive waste and fallout that blew downwind from the test sites to their homes. The Shoshone Nation alone had to endure 620 kilotons of nuclear fallout between 1951 and 1992. They received more than double the radiation exposure of the Chernobyl disaster in Ukraine in 1986. And at the very least, the Soviet government relocated those people with houses and pensions. For an example, that would truly stagger Mr. Mercator if he knew what it meant. Check out the Miller map, and that's Miller with an ER. It's an illustration of just how much of the United States was exposed to radioactive particles in the first decade of nuclear testing alone. It's actually pretty scary, so uh, maybe don't look it up. Thor drops a bomb into a world that he knows is basically uninhabited. I'm sure most people in the US wouldn't see a problem with that or its real-world counterpart. But Thor knows why the world is uninhabited. He knows that his people are the reason for it. Very few people in the US actually understand the scope of the crimes that were committed simply for them to be here, let alone the fact that those crimes have not stopped. Thor reassures everyone around him that the most they're going to feel is a slight rumble from the other dimension. I guess that's how it works, I don't really care. The rumble takes up about half a page, and of course everyone is fine after. The world has been saved. Iron Man looks at the Widow and says, You were saying, Natasha? Because he just has to get one last one in, I suppose. She stammers about top-secret dossiers on Thor and that she just can't believe it and stuff like that and whatever. A bunch of helicopters land next to our heroes and urge them to get in because the whole area is about to be flattened. I don't know what they mean. We never hear about any of the other plans from the group. 
It's at that moment that Jan looks up at the sky and notices the Hulk on his maniacal destructive rampage to prove to the aliens that he's not gay. We don't really see him tearing through all the ships, but we do see them crash. Again, why were they hanging around in the first place? Two issues ago, they were just trying to hurry this whole thing up. They should be retreating. Thor, Iron Man, Black Widow, the Wasp, and Captain America have now all reconvened at a makeshift command center. As he watches the ships get absolutely creamed by the Hulk, Thor points out that the military has let loose the one thing worse than an alien invasion. Fury tells him to shut up, but, you know, Thor has a point. The United States has a history of not following the laws that it holds so many others to. Are you trying to show contempt for this court? No, I'm doing my best to hide it. Often, it does so blatantly, such as Clinton's frequent unprovoked bombing of Iraq in the 90s, or Bush's indefinite detention and brazen torture of civilians after 9-11, or when Biden bombed Syria in 2021, only 35 days into his presidency. Well, when I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. <laughs> More devious, however, is the U.S.'s use of known terrorists to advance its goals. Haven't you ever met a man that can make you happy? Sure. Lots of times. The United States has no shortage of relationships with violent reactionary extremists, but one in particular is most relevant here. I am delighted. I have heard so much about you. Yeah, but you can't prove it. Can't prove it. Can't prove it. Remember how George W. Bush dodged the draft by serving in the Champagne unit in the Texas National Guard? During his time there, he met and befriended Air Force pilot Jim Bath. The two would become close, and Bath would go on to be a trusted lieutenant of the Bush family for decades. In 1976, using capital provided to him by the Bush family, Bath opened his own private airline brokerage, Jim Bath and Associates. Soon after, he was approached for one of his earliest sales, an F-27 turboprop. The buyer was a Saudi investor and heir to a vast construction company fortune. Bath flew the plane to Saudi Arabia himself and spent three weeks in Jeddah getting to know his new client. Within months of their initial transaction and apparent budding friendship, Bath and his client formalized their business relationship, and Bath became the official American representative of the investment interests of one Salem bin Laden. Government has a role to play as well, uh, and that is to create an environment in which the entrepreneurial spirit flourishes. Happening alongside this, a coup was brewing against the recently established Republic of Afghanistan. Two years later, in April of 1978, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan took control of the government and immediately began a revolutionary program of land reform, education overhaul, healthcare and agricultural reform, infrastructure modernization, and so forth. You know, everything that communist parties tend to accomplish once they're in power. Despite an overwhelming popularity with the people of Afghanistan, the gender equality aspects of the reforms did incite violence from the more reactionary religious outliers, known as the Mujahideen, who began to collaborate with the understandably bitter, ousted feudal landlord class. This caught the attention 
of the United States government, who were incensed that the land reforms interfered with the production of opium for heroin, of which 70% came from Afghanistan at the time. Remember episode 9? The U.S., Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia all quickly began to materially support the terrorists in the reactionary movement. Contrary to common wisdom, but explicitly admitted by Carter's Secretary of State, Zbigniew Brzezinski, this funding began at least six months prior to the Soviet intervention on December 24, 1979. In fact, it was because of this violence that the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan actually reached out to the Soviet Union to ask them for aid. The USSR initially refused, understanding the difficulty it would cause everyone. For more than a decade, under the aegis of Operation Cyclone, the CIA funded, armed, and trained the right-wing terrorists of the Mujahideen who were led by none other than the brother of Salem bin Laden, Osama. After the Soviet retreat in 1989, now experts in killing and terror, the Mujahideen began to fracture and fight amongst themselves. This split resulted in the formation of numerous terror groups, such as the Taliban, the Muslim Brotherhood, and of course, Al-Qaeda. Lest we forget our roots, we have to get back to Jim Bath and Associates. This Bush-started, Saudi-funded, and Bath-fronted venture would go on to supply the CIA-maintained Bank of Credit and Commerce International with airplanes. It would become deeply involved in the Iran-Contra scandal. It was, in essence, a CIA supply runner company owned by the brother of the very man whose terrorist activities the CIA was paying for. Our connections get even deeper, though, because in 1978, George W. Bush would partner with Salim bin Laden to found the oil drilling company Arbusto Energy. In 1986, the failing Arbusto would be bought by Harkin Energy in a deal that was underwritten to the tune of $25 million by the previously mentioned CIA bank BCCI. The BCCI was the very bank that was funneling money to Osama bin Laden. I'm sorry you think more of your diamonds than you do of your soul. I'm sorry you think more of my soul than you do of my diamonds. On July 10th, 2001, FBI Special Agent Kenneth Williams sent a memo from, of all places, Phoenix, Arizona, to his superiors, indicating that airports around Phoenix had seen a number of potential bin Laden associates taking civilian flying lessons and asking direct questions about airport security. The memo urged that someone take a closer look. One can be generous and assume that the FBI did not act on this because it did not wish to racially profile anyone. But one would have to be very generous indeed. Bin Laden and the Mujahideen, the child-stealing Contras in Nicaragua, the so-called separatists of the East Turkestan Islamic movement, the right-wing former military police in El Salvador, the list of terrorist organizations and individuals that the United States and its corporate-owning class have funded, either clandestinely or overtly, is staggering in both its contents and its length. 
and then we just abandon these people we've turned into monsters to go commit terror elsewhere. We have a word for these consequences of the U.S.'s actions. Blowback. That's what Mark Miller was trying to communicate with the villains of The Ultimates 2. But I'm not sure he really understands what it is, which is why his presentation of it is so muddled. Imagine if S.H.I.E.L.D. just let the Hulk hang out and kill people around Phoenix after this was all over. Imagine if they just looked away as he destroyed infrastructure over and over for years. People would be reading New York Times op-eds by doofuses like David Brooks about how Arizona is a backwards warlike civilization that couldn't hack it in the modern world, and how it was the fault of the Arizonans and not the giant monster that the U.S. created and dropped on them. That's what the U.S.'s approach to Afghanistan and Iraq has been, and it's very apparently happening in Ukraine today. Of course, they don't leave him there. Fury assures Thor that they have a containment plan, and he radios Hawkeye to see if Hawkeye is in position to execute it. Cut to a helicopter, and Hawkeye responds that he's ready with an adamantium-tipped arrow full of Hulk serum antidote. The next page shows the Hulk being chased by S.H.I.E.L.D. helicopters, and he jumps up and takes one out, which rocks. Critical support for the Hulk's actions here. There's a tense back and forth over the radio between Hawkeye and Fury as Hawkeye waits for the perfect moment to shoot. Hawkeye looses the arrow just as the Hulk is leaping toward his helicopter, and the arrow sinks into the Hulk's chest. It doesn't appear to have any effect, and the Hulk continues leaping toward Hawkeye, shouting your typical Hulk things like, little man think he's smarter than Hulk, and such. The Hulk gets aboard the chopper and is inches away from murdering his teammate when he reverts back to puny banner. Hawkeye makes a fool of himself in front of the other soldiers because he hasn't realized this and is screaming his head off that he's about to be eaten. And that's it. The battle's basically over. We get a full page of the Air Force cleaning up what little resistance there is left from individual alien fighter craft, but all the battle cruisers or whatever have been destroyed. And now begins our denouement. Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, our two remaining Black Ops Ultimates, are congratulating each other for a job well done in front of Black Widow, who accuses them of not having contributed at all. Quicksilver, the speedster, begins to assure her that if they were to slow down any satellite footage of the battle, his actions would become apparent. But Black Widow cuts him off. And yeah, it's a, it's a rehash of the exchange from issue 8. Comedy comes in threes, Mark. Elsewhere, a S.H.I.E.L.D. soldier finds Captain America vomiting behind a truck away from prying eyes. He asks Cap if Cap would say a few words to the survivors, who are all pretty stoked about their victory. Captain America agrees to address the troops, but he tells the guy he needs a minute. And he really looks like he does, that's for sure. The next panel is Captain America saluting and Nick Fury waving to a bunch of elated soldiers. It's pretty gross. Cut to the whole Ultimates team, minus the Hulk and Giant Man, standing on a ridge overlooking the remains of the day. Hawkeye is rambling, quote, Man, this is unbelievable. I mean, I was in Kosovo and Afghanistan when they got liberated. I was in Germany the night the Berlin Wall came down. But it was nothing like this. 
we were up against spaceships here, fighting aliens who were in league with Nazis for God's sake. It doesn't get more black and white than that, right? And, you know, of course it does. Not only because we've seen how the economic system the Ultimates defend will destroy the Earth as surely as the aliens' bomb would have, but also because the very historic moments he mentioned witnessing are, in fact, fascist ones themselves. What? In the United States, we're taught that the Berlin Wall was built by an authoritarian puppet of the Soviet Union the German Democratic Republic, or East Germany, to ruin the lives of freedom-yearning people in East Berlin. What we're never taught about is the veritable onslaught of capitalist propaganda aimed at the citizens of East Berlin, enticing them to flee to West Berlin. Remember that for decades after the 1940s, the capitalist world was in its heyday as far as normal workers were concerned. The contradictions of a system that steadily siphons their wealth and political power hadn't become so readily apparent as they are now. Luxury items and so-called abundance took center stage of basically all propaganda broadcasts aimed at citizens of socialist countries. In Germany, this was particularly pointed at technical experts such as scientists and engineers. The promise of an opulent life drew so many away from the stability of the socialist safety nets that there was even a name for the damage it was causing, the brain drain. And that's all the propaganda was, a promise, one that was more often than not unfulfilled. In 1999, USA Today reported, quote, when the Berlin Wall crumbled, East Germans imagined a life of freedom where consumer goods were abundant and hardships would fade. Ten years later, a remarkable 51% say they were happier with communism. In his book, America's Deadliest Export Democracy, historian William Bloom posits that the number would likely have been even higher than 51% had the poll been held earlier, as many of the older people who would have remembered communist East Berlin fondly had already died by 1999. Not only were experts and workers enticed from the socialist project by hollow siren songs of luxury, but the United States and West Germany, which still had a staggering number of Nazis in government, also funded and executed a bunch of terrorist campaigns against East Berlin and East Germany to make life as difficult for the socialists as possible. Yet another in a long line of terrorist besties of the U.S. that we should by now come to expect. Uh, the State Department dealt with that today. Oh, they did? Yes, sir. What do they do? Deny it? To point to further evidence of the fascist project that Hawkeye has admitted to working for, in 1999, following a 78-day NATO bombing campaign instigated by the Clinton administration, the Kosovo province of Yugoslavia was divided into five governmental zones and occupied by the U.S., Great Britain, Germany, Italy, and France. The ground troops NATO had been using to wage this war, or humanitarian intervention as they obscured it, was the Kosovo Liberation Army. 
This overtly fascist, racist, separatist militia was granted power over the government of Kosovo despite, or rather because of, their heinous war crimes against the people of Kosovo in the name of their own so-called liberation. Just this past spring, four of the leaders of this government were finally put on trial for their transgressions against humanity. Really cool that Hawkeye was apparently on their side. Jan turns to Hawkeye and says, quote, You know what I think this means? I think this means we're officially superheroes now. And all the Ultimates are standing shoulder to shoulder, looking right at the audience for some reason. And I can't express how disturbing Janet Pym's face is in this panel. I understand she's just come out of a huge firefight. That's not what's going on here. Brian Hitch has much to answer for. Turning the page, we're now well and truly out of the danger zone. It's difficult to say how long it's been since the attempted bombing of the solar system, but it's likely been between 24 and 48 hours. We're back on the Triskelion, and Bruce Banner is back inside his cell, watching the public celebrations of the Ultimate's victory on television. The footage is replete with Ultimate's merchandise, of course. He's asking genuinely good and important questions like, would they still be celebrating if they knew about the 20,000 dead S.H.I.E.L.D. soldiers, or that the Hulk had defeated Herr Kleiser. He agonizes over the visceral memories of chewing and swallowing Kleiser's pummeled remains. He laments over the fact that he's been a committed vegetarian for 15 years, and then this happened. This is a bit of a goof. In our introduction to Banner in the second issue, his very first line of dialogue is him ordering an oven roast, and I know that wasn't 15 goddamn years ago, although it feels like it. More disgusting than all this, though, is Betty's reaction. For some ungodly and unfathomable reason, Miller decided to have Banner's slash The Hulk's revolting semi-cannibalism be a huge turn-on for Betty, who ends up writing letters to Nick Fury every single day of Bruce's internment, begging him to let her go in there and have sex with him. I feel awful for Mark Miller's wife. What must she think of all this? We cut to a corridor in which Captain America and Nick Fury are doing the classic walk and talk. Fury tells Cap that a recent public opinion poll shows that 18% of the U.S. thinks the government faked the alien invasion. Captain America, simpleton that he is in this universe, can't fathom why anyone would believe that. Fury opines that it's because the public believe the U.S. needs an excuse to justify its massive military budget in the face of shrinking coffers elsewhere. I have no idea what to make of this conversation. What is Miller trying to say? That he believes that the U.S. military budget is overblown? I know he believes that now, and I'm pretty sure he believed that then, but if so, why did he write 13 issues of a comic book in which products of that overblown military budget use it to save the day? The contents of this book, however fictional, posit the exact opposite of what Miller might be including this scene for. This is the Ultimates at its heart. It doesn't matter what Miller was trying to communicate with it. 
even if he believed the U.S. and its military are the worst things to happen to the entire world, and that U.S. hegemony is a vile shackle to be repudiated and thrown off, his immaterial analysis of why those things are bad and his unwillingness and, more likely, inability to proffer an alternative render this piece of quote-unquote political pontification toothless, bland to the point of serving instead to bolster the very forces it may or may not be criticizing. With nothing of substance to contribute, the empty bluster of the ultimates simply makes room for the powers that be to justify their existence. The one good thing about this conversation is that it gives us our final tally of ultimate celebrity sightings. In complaining about people believing that the ultimates faked the invasion to get more money, Fury jokes that the real reason for the huge budget is that he always flashes his Denzel Washington smile on Capitol Hill. And that brings us to UCS number 24. That marks 24 times in 13 issues that Miller wanted us to truly understand that this was our world, the real world. Miller is a little more reserved in his old age, a year later, and only includes 10 new celebrities in The Ultimates 2. I forgot to check for them in Ultimates 3, but I'm just not going to go back and look because I want as little to do with that comic as possible. As Fury and Captain America round the corner in the corridor, a scientist in full hazmat gear comes out of Banner's security area. He's holding a see-through green canister of some sort. He addresses Fury with the following, quote, Got another two and a half pounds of waste here, General. That's approximately 43% of the creature's estimated body mass right on schedule, sir. End quote. And yes, it's exactly what you think. The Hulk ate Kleiser, who's a shapeshifter, and S.H.I.E.L.D. isn't taking any chances on Kleiser reconstituting himself. So they're throwing Bruce Banner's shit in poop jail. Miller wrote the scene and, of course, knew it would be in there. But he apparently didn't expect Hitch to actually draw the logs in the jar. The two laugh about it in the interview in the back of the collected edition and joke that they can't possibly end the interview on a mention of the Hulk's feces. So, of course, they do. Cap and Fury finish their conversation as they part ways with the shit carrier. Fury laughs about Cap's France one-liner and says it must be so surreal for THE Captain America to finally be public in his identity and to have, at long last, bested his most loathsome foe. He congratulates Captain America for finally having some closure. And of course, it would have to be a character who isn't Captain America suggesting this, because we didn't even get to explore the actual relationship between Steve Rogers and Herr Kleiser. Kleiser showed up like three times. Who cares? We also were never told that Captain America was a secret identity in the 40s. I guess we were just meant to assume that. The next few pages actually do give us some slight closure in a decent way. Jan Pym is getting her hair done and talking with her stylist about living in the limelight now. He tells her that he's getting conflicting reports from USA Today, 
who claim Thor took down the big mothership, and People Magazine, who are saying that it was Tony Stark who did it. Jan tells him to believe USA Today because Tony owns a controlling stake in People. And we don't have to get into what that means. We've already discussed at length the impact of billionaire ownership on news media. The closure comes when she gets a phone call from Hank, who's still in hiding because of the awful things he did. Hank plays the mea culpa card and tries to worm his way back into her life. To Miller's credit, he does a great job of making the reader believe that this isn't the first time Hank's done this to Jan. And further to Miller's credit, Jan basically tells Hank to fuck off, and then hangs up on him. Of course, Miller destroys this by having her essentially go back to him in The Ultimates 2, but whatever. We're now where we were always going to end up. It's the inevitable cul-de-sac of a real-world story about so-called American superheroes in a lifelike so-called America. The White House. It's a big banquet honoring the Ultimates. Thor is pointedly not in attendance, but it's a dulled point because he said he won't set foot in the White House until America elects a new president. And yeah, criticize George Bush all you want, but it's not like Barack Obama's drone program didn't continue the death toll of Bush's war. Again, Thor represents Miller's jaundiced idea of what a left-winger actually is. And despite Miller's own supposed left-wing views, he's more than happy to caricaturize those whose views he should ostensibly agree with. Anyway, the Black Widow mentions to Hawkeye that she has romantic intentions toward Tony Stark, which, you know, gross. These come to fruition in the sequel, but here it's just a setup to a gag in which Tony is flirting with Laura Bush and saying that he can show her how he got his Iron Man reputation. Again, gross. Also, don't forget that Laura Bush killed a man in a possible drunk driving accident in 1963 and was never punished, bringing her body count to higher than that of giant man's. The meal is over and folks are enjoying themselves on the dance floor. In a very modern move, Jan has asked Steve to dance, but it's not really weirding him out. He apologizes to her for beating the shit out of her husband, but she's also not weirded out by that. She actually apologizes to him for overreacting to his gifts of flowers and soda pop when she was in sickbay. The pair bond over their mutual embarrassment of how they've acted around each other and kiss. It's fine, whatever. Nick Fury, alone in a corridor and watching the dancing, notices the two of them and flashes a wry grin. Ignoring Jan completely, he says, quote, Well, ain't that nice. I thought that guy was never gonna get some, as he casually strolls to the Oval Office. He greets the guards on duty and orders them to knock off and get some champagne. As fireworks fly over the exterior of the White House in our final panel, Nick Fury closes us out with, Ain't every day we save the world. In response to World War I, Vladimir Lenin published an essay called Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. In it, he proposes that when there is a surplus of capital in developed countries, 
the only way for corporations to continue to increase their profit is to export that capital to underdeveloped countries where capital is scarce, and thus wages are low and land and raw materials are cheap. Remember, the very nature of capitalism is that an enterprise must maximize its profits and, in fact, increase them over time. As this winner-takes-all process continues, winners do indeed begin to take all. This results in monopoly capitalism. The monopolization of industry occurs alongside the monopolization of the banks, with fewer and fewer banks controlling the money. In turn, this creates an industry of what Lenin called finance capital, the tendency of banks, rather than the industrialists, to own the capital used in those industries. The resultant decreasingly democratic control of this capital, of this financial power that can be translated into military might, technological repression, media and therefore social manipulation, and so on, is what Lenin uses to define imperialism. Capitalism at its logical, inevitable extreme. The export of finance capital, of this control, is now of paramount importance, more so than the export of actual goods and products. The world is now split, shared, and controlled among international monopolists. Their power is beyond threat from other, lesser capitalist enterprises. This is the highest stage. This is imperialism. In the decades after World War II, capitalist powers within the United States have used the United States to do everything in their power to establish control over the economic affairs of the world. This includes trade sanctions, the illegal overthrow of other governments, the weaponization of so-called human rights rhetoric, and all too often the use of overwhelming military force. Like Zeus siring both Ares and Hephaestus, the power of the United States begets war and weapons. When there is rebellion, the United States releases its most devastating forces and sides with evil incarnates like the hundred-handed ones, or the Contras. In his book, Anatomy of a War, historian Gabriel Kolko describes the U.S.'s focus on Vietnam in this way. Quote, The Vietnam War was, for the United States, the culmination of its frustrating post-war effort to merge its arms and politics to halt and reverse the emergence of states and social systems opposed to the international order Washington sought to establish, end quote. Because of this, Kolko maintains, the objective defeat of the United States by the communist forces of Vietnam makes the Vietnam War more significant to our understanding of U.S. imperialism in particular than either of the two world wars before it. It illustrates the limits of U.S. power and the willingness of the U.S. government to sacrifice so many troops and so much material to push those limits, all in the name of stopping 
a rising economic system that would no longer allow international corporations to control government policy. Because of the loss in Vietnam, capitalist hegemons like the United States and its allies had to shift focus to their more clandestine methods of destroying the opposition. Thunderbolts were simply too loud now. It started in Iran and South America and spread well beyond that. Even before Vietnam, the U.S. was funding and arming right-wing activists and soldiers. Knowing that, at the end of their terror, when they've gained control of whichever government they're fighting, the new conservative leadership will invariably make policy that favors the profits of giant corporations. These corporations move their production facilities to these countries because the right-wing governments have destroyed all labor protections basically by killing everyone who dared stick up for themselves. With this cheap labor and minimized resistance, corporations can dominate the landscape, ravaging the natural resources and ruining the environment. To escape from this terror, citizens of these now-destroyed countries flee to the seemingly only economy left with viable work for them, the United States. However, thanks to deliberately draconian regulations and unscalable financial and bureaucratic requirements, most of these immigrants are forced to use unsanctioned methods to enter the country. Because of this, they are afforded no labor rights here, much as they wouldn't be in their home countries. Without these labor rights, with the threat of deportation, they are at the mercy of the same corporations here whose business practices caused them to emigrate in the first place. People who grow up in and are educated by the United States believe it to be a force for good in the world. This is not an accident. The loss in Vietnam shook that belief. The devastation was televised and made apparent. Questions abounded. To combat that, and to combat the embarrassment of the revelations of the U.S.'s clandestine activities in South America and elsewhere thanks to the Church Committee hearings and the Iran-Contra scandal, the Reagan administration doubled down on the justice and democracy rhetoric in order to justify our supposedly well-intentioned interventions, because Lord knows they weren't going to just stop. Women's rights were invoked. The overthrow of some other forms of generic oppression was nebulously trotted out. The freedom of enterprise was presented as a beacon to follow. Alongside this, history was warped, and the idea that the United States, at least at one time, fought a good war, began to take hold with our retelling of the history of World War II. For a while, communism was the enemy of the day, and CIA cutouts like Reagan's newly created National Endowment for Democracy could look U.S. citizens in the eye and tell them that they, secretive U.S. special forces, and the right-wing death squads they were arming, training, and funding were fighting for freedom around the world. This was, of course, the freedom for capital to flow and ruin the lives of millions while filling the coffers of increasingly few. After decades of undermining and mischaracterizing the irrefutable successes of communist movements, the United States managed to destroy the Soviet Union. 
which had been the backbone of revolutionary governments all over the planet. The U.S. could point to the economic hardships of, say, Cuba, and blame it on communism rather than on the facts that the U.S. has had an embargo on Cuba for 60 years and was responsible for the collapse of Cuba's largest trading partner. With communism no longer a credible boogeyman, the rhetoric had to shift. But it didn't have to shift too far. The United States had a ready-made backup in the abandoned terrorist factions in the Middle East that it had created and supported in the 1970s and 80s to combat communism. With blowback from this starting as early as 1993's World Trade Center bombing, if not earlier, the U.S. ruling class could point squarely to villains it had helped foster and demand that the U.S.'s military budget be expanded even beyond Cold War levels to deal with them and others. This was most blatant in a year 2000 report by a group called the Project for a New American Century. The report, named Rebuilding America's Defenses, suggested that the United States, now at the pinnacle of world power relations, must be made even stronger militarily if it were to wield that power to quote-unquote responsibly shape the rest of the world to reflect American values. These American values are the dictates of international banks and corporations, of capitalists. The transformation and modernization of U.S. military power was, as the report said, most likely to be a long process. That is, unless a, quote, catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor, end quote, were to occur. One year later, it would. And here we are. It's late 2001, and Mark Miller is scrambling to alter his Ultimates story to reflect the jingoism of the post-9-11 Eurocentric world. In doing so, he creates a team of villains and makes them heroes, saying nothing in the process. And during the production of this comic book, something even worse happens. The United States invades Iraq. It's crucial to understand, from a Leninist perspective, that imperialism is a stage of capitalism in which monopoly capital has already established its stranglehold on the world. It must export capital to places where that capital can be used most efficiently. If an area has a necessary resource that can be captured and commodified, but that area has enough capital or development of its own to resist imperialist export of capital, imperialism dictates that that area must be weakened or destroyed, ripped of its economic development and foundation, so that the imperialists can get the best bang for their buck. At the behest of companies like Halliburton, KBR, BlackRock, etc., the Bush administration and the militaries of the so-called Coalition of the Willing destroyed Iraq's ability to defend itself from economic intrusion. Mark Miller's Greatest Weakness The reason above all others that this book simply doesn't work as a meaningful critique 
is that he doesn't understand the class nature of imperialism. The United States isn't an empire because of its aggressive foreign policy. It's an empire because its aggressive foreign policy is in service of the capital class, an international class. He approaches this with Thor denouncing Bush's war for oil, but he fundamentally misses the point as illustrated by his use of billionaire industrialist Tony Stark, first as servant of the government, and then as financial replacement for it at the end of The Ultimates 2. The United States government did not want the oil. The United States government couldn't give two shits about oil. The capitalist class that runs the United States doesn't even care that it's oil. They care about the fact that it's a commodity, the procurement, production, and sale of which could be financed cheaply because the U.S. invaded and destroyed the country that it belonged to. This happens over and over and over. And the environmental devastation of this is on the verge of ending the human race. All of this is out there. All of this information and the theory to make it make sense is available and accessible. There are two very simple stumbling blocks when it comes to communicating them, though. Most people in the United States don't know what it all means, and therefore, they can't really be compelled to care. Further, because the capital class dictates our media and our education systems, anti-communist propaganda is absolutely indelible in our brains. Thus, even sober, factual presentation is often met with resistance and rejection. People are dying. The world is being killed. We are almost out of time, and so many of us sit there and assume that there's nothing to be done about it, that the villains have won simply because there aren't any heroes. This isn't the case. We're all heroes. When those of us who work for a living, who sell our labor to our bosses just to afford a bed and a microwave, stand up together and refuse our oppression, we're heroes. When we sing songs of protest, when we rally against racism, we're heroes. When we plant trees or throw wildflower seeds to the wind, we're heroes. When we feed our neighbors and look after their children, even just for an hour or two so they can get some sleep, we're heroes. We're heroes in every act of defiance that we do, and we can do them daily, but we can also be so much more. There's a momentum to heroism. There's a momentum to change. And the last thing the billionaires destroying our future want is for us to sustain that momentum. That momentum comes from deliberate organizing. It comes from joining parties and groups that will call on you to stand and deliver. It comes from a place of discipline, commitment, and responsibility to each other and to tomorrow. It comes from one endless chant with infinite voices saying, no, no, we deserve to live. Your profit, your empire will not replace our happiness, our lives, our planet. And as long as there is resistance, as long as there is momentum, 
then ultimately, there is hope. Once again, faithful listeners, this is a time of sweet sorrow for us here at Collective Action Comics. We look back on this year as a period of learning, of laughing, and of course, of very bad superhero comics with even worse politics. To all of you out there in listener land, thank you. From the bottoms of our revolutionary hearts, thank you. We still have no idea where our brave comrade Bud might be, but we're sure that, whatever he's up to, he's doing it for the people. Keep your tuners dialed to this station. Who knows when we'll hear from him next? In the coming weeks between this season and the next, be on the lookout for bonus interviews and one-off episodes available exclusively to supporters on Patreon. And speaking of Patreon... Thank you to our new patrons, the Easters of Podcast, Ryan Nordness, Mackenzie Parvin, Alex Bain, Twistaway Comics, and Wirecats. And thank you to Kafka for increasing their subscription from odd bystander to lovable sidekick. Major appreciation goes out to Paul Moore for the generous tip via Collective Action Comics Linktree. And, of course... Revolutionary love and gratitude goes out to our Destroyer of Empire-level supporters, Ray F. and David Barajas, as well as the bonus material and their names read at the end of each episode. Destroyer of Empire-level supporters get a coveted seat on the council, giving them power to submit and vote on issues to be covered for full-length bonus episodes. If you, comrade, would like to support the show and the struggle, you can sign up for our Patreon as well at patreon.com slash collectiveactioncomics. Any of the four tiers will get your name on the radio. You can email the show at collectiveactioncomics at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at collectiveactioncomics or on Twitter at pod. That's comics with an X. And as always... Tune in next time for the next season of Collective Action Comics.